Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Early Music Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Bjorn Schmelzer, internationally acclaimed multidisciplinary artist about early music as a revivalist movement, his research in a Sardinian musical association which has passed down a repertoire of liturgical music orally for hundreds of years, and how it affected his outlook on the musical performance of great written works in European music history. Bjorn is founder and artistic director of Grand de Lavoie, an Antwerp-based ensemble which describes itself as having a fascination for the voice, the genealogy of vocal repertoires, and their relationships with the effective body, history, and territory. So, are you ready for this? Join me. Our combined strength bring order to the galaxy. This is the Early Music Podcast with your host, Andrew Byrne. Brought to you by Rama, the Early Music Network. Kawabunga. Episode 8. Sa- In this episode, we will be taking a step back and discussing the goals of the early music movement. Bjorn Schmelzer, as you'll hear, is interested in asking big questions, like, what are we doing? Can great pre-modern works of art also be considered modern? Should performers engage with exceptional works of music which we today recognize as great with the same freedom as artists in other disciplines create and innovate with their respective mediums? He will give us an example of an ongoing traditional music, so to speak, from northern Sardinia, the Confraternita dell'Oratorio di Santa Croce in Castel Sardo, but Bjorn singles them out to help us understand his broader point, that our musical and cultural history is full of contradictions. Oh, and we will hear a bit of the Confraternita singing in this episode, but mostly music from Grand de Lavoie's recording of the Guillaume de Machaut Messe de Notre Dame. Bjorn, can you tell me about early music as a revivalist project? Early music is a movement that that started from a cut. I think you could say that maybe early music started with modernity. So we are in the beginning of the 19th century and you have this idea that something is lost. We lost something. We lost the past. We lost the traditions from the past. We lost the music of the past. And we are in a kind of chaotic modernity where things are like, uh, let's say, almost eternally present. And we go to a future which is unknown and and scary, maybe. For some people, it means progress. For some people, it means uh, emancipation, development. You can say that I think that's the project also of modernity. It was an emancipatory project, believing in the future, believing in, in the present and letting go the past. The past is something which blocks emancipation which is a problem for the future of the western european civilization so but you have always this maybe these dialectics already from the beginning that there is this idea that if we give up everything of the past as we did with modernity are we not losing something of the of the core of the of the of the whole thing are we not losing are we not throwing away maybe the child with the bathwater or whatever how you, how you throwing out the baby with the bathwater so i think that's quite interesting that that um that you see that um, people in early music, 
as, as they imagined the music of the past, let's say in the beginning of the 19th century already, that they had this idea of reimagining this music. We have to reconstruct this music, we have to find it back, whatever. But nevertheless, immediately they were aware that still things were just happening from the past. There were still things that leaked from the past into modernity, you can say. And when Bjorn says things from the past that leak through, he means to say that as this idea of modernity is really a theoretical concept, of course there were pockets of musical activities which began long before the 19th century and continued in a way unaffected by the conscious, stylistic, or artistic changes that came about with Romanticism. You have a lot of these kind of what you can call traditions. Although, of course, at the same time, there were also scholars and 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 maybe you can say enlightened uh, thinkers who had a whole idea of what traditional music could mean, like music from, let's say, folk music. The idea of, 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 the, of the people was also like something that emerged there. What I think is quite interesting is that these people in the 19th century somehow fantasized, imagined a kind of direct identification of the people from the past with their own practices, with their own music traditions. I think also tradition means basically that the idea that uh, this is sort of uncut uh, flow in, in culture of which people are proud of, they identify with that. So now I would come with a kind of example that is maybe intriguing to, to, to a little bit complexify this whole schedule that we are building here. I'm in fact uh, educated as an anthropologist and with a lot of uh, musical uh, elements in it. And I have been studying 20 years ago, music polyphonic traditions in Sardinia. And especially I have been in a village in the north of Sardinia called Castel Sardo. And there is still a brotherhood there. Uh... The Confraternita dell'Oratorio di Santa Croce is an association of lay people which has a rich history of musical performance in the area of Castel Sardo. The earliest document mentioning the Brotherhood dates to 1669, and in reading it, one can surmise that the organization had existed for quite some time before. They perform regularly for events on the liturgical calendar and for occasions such as funerals, processions, and masses. The Brotherhood also hosts and performs in its own organized events. They sing a kind of four voice, what they call falso bordone. It's a, it's a vocal uh, practice. They do it without scores, but of course you could even almost imagine it would be scored. To clarify, by saying that the confraternita perform without scores, Bjorn means that the music is passed down orally and is not notated, despite the fact that when listening to a performance, some stylistic elements to the music sound as if they were borrowed from an early European written musical tradition. It sounds just a little bit stranger than what we imagine that these 15th, 16th century compositions look when you look on, on the paper. There are also parallel movements that would maybe in written traditions we be what they would say forbidden, according to written counterpoint and so on. <laughs> Nevertheless, right. you feel some kind of legacy from a written tradition. Now, what intrigued me very much when I was there is that, in fact, nobody in the village liked really what these people were doing. So. Um, you can say for a typical traditional practice is quite remarkable and maybe it's at the same time something that happens much more than we think. It is in fact that the villagers, they were in fact completely detached from the practice of this brotherhood. Although this was claimed by ethnomusicologists and anthropologists as being the core, the essence 
of what these people in that village were doing. And very interesting is also that at the same time, the singers themselves also didn't really understand themselves why they were doing what they were doing. So there was also already a sort of displacement or a detachment towards uh, their own practices. Nevertheless, there was something there, a fascination, maybe also a duty somehow, the feeling that they had to continue this. And so uh, my claim would be that maybe we should revisit a little bit this historical idea that uh, people in the past or people in traditional music are directly belonging what they do. Maybe their practices are often also practices of non-belonging. And, and in this sense, you could almost say that they somehow uh, are not dealing with uh, identification, with how they would build a sort of, uh, let's say, northern Sardinian uh, identity or something. But in fact, with the fact that they don't know what they are really are, let's say, where they belong. Really? In the interest of transparency, I should say that the Early Music Podcast never spoke to members in the Confraternita or residents of the community of Castelsardo in the making of this episode. I say this because some of Bjorn's observations of the Confraternita and indeed of Castelsardo's musical heritage are rather surprising, and though they may well have been accurate at the time, today it might be different. Now, maybe the relationship between a community and its traditions, or the motivations of participants in that tradition, don't remain fixed through time. However, this doesn't change Bjorn's argument that a musical tradition based in a geographical area may not always reflect, represent, or be accepted by the community within that region. Bjorn, as we established earlier, to the listener, it sounds as if certain musical elements within the singing practice of the Confraternita might be somehow related to performance practices or indeed compositional practices of early European written musics. Could you elaborate on that? Corsica and Sardinia are these two islands where uh, barbarians were still living and so on. So there was a continuous recolonization of these, of these um, uh, uh, islands. And you could imagine that um, the locals were probably hearing these practices. Maybe they were even forced to learn it themselves, to sing it themselves. But what they did then is, in fact, artistically hijacking these traditions. So they took not at all from themselves. It was not a local Sardinian practice, but they somehow uh, stole it from this clergy and they made it into something of their own. Nevertheless, I would imagine that the split of these repertoires somehow also continued with the practice. So in this sense, you can say they didn't just identify with something essential, essentially of their own, but in doing this practice, they, in a way, at the same time, marked a sort of detachment from what they were forced to do, in a way. Maybe we have to rethink the idea that traditions are, first of all, so traditional that they are, let's say, pre-modern, uh, and that they are about a direct identification of practitioners with what they are doing. Does this conclusion that you've come to apply to your understanding of early music? This has, of course, huge consequences for our own perception of this music, because we are always thinking that we are the ones now today in modernity, in 21st century, the ones that don't know how to do this music. We need to rely on the historical other to tell us through our research, through um, a close reading of the scores, through trial and error to do these things, to hope somehow something to revive the voice of, of the historical other. This could be the composer, this could be a singing practice somewhere. But maybe would it not be also interesting to somehow try to include this original detachment, 
this original dislocation of repertoires. And I think instead of using traditional music as an example of uh, uncut, undetached, and almost belonging uh, ways of doing music which is purely functional in a liturgy, maybe we should, in fact, much more think in a modern way about how people were already from the beginning detached and displaced from their own music, their own practices. Full disclosure, the theme of this episode was originally supposed to be about the differences between musical traditions that were based upon oral and written practices, as well as the questions which arise for scholars and performers today when tackling musics of the past that appeared at the intersection of those two traditions. I think there was an assumption that... By looking at a certain European traditional music, we would learn something about how a pre-romantic art music might have been performed. However, what we've gotten so far raises more questions than answers. And certainly within the framework of Bjorn's, um, let's call it his project, I worry if I myself might now begin to be detaching from thinking about early music performance to thinking about thinking about early music performance. But nevertheless, let's keep going. So how do you see the early music movement within this framework and what would be your project within it? Basically, I think that early music is the band-aid on the wound of modernity. It's of course, it's an experience of a rupture. And I, I'm not saying that 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 uh, we should abandon the project of early music. I think we should be just very critical and we should um, rethink um, this maybe unthought or unset horizon in which we in early music try to operate. I think we should absolutely not give up the past. The historical process is super important for the for the present and for the future. The problem with early music is that because of its historicism, which I think historicism is the way to deal with the cut of the past. It's historicism means that somehow it would be possible to recover something of the past, which I think is, is an impossibility. It's a fantasy. I, I cannot follow this idea that, that we should uh, just know enough about the culture of their times in order them to, to understand what these people think. These theoretical treatises don't help us at all to understand how these people were composing because their compositions are mostly at odds with the rules of their own time. And so what would be for me an ideal is that we somehow could articulate in our contemporary performances something of this basic rupture of a composer with its own cultural horizon in which he emerged, in which his music emerges. My project would be, let's try to, to find where these ruptures are, where these contradictions are. Let's find moments where composers articulate something of the impossibility of their own time. I think that's what an artwork in all times is doing. And so let's maybe stop with too much historicizing the otherness of the other and saying, well, music from the 15th century, it's not really art. And so we don't have to, um, to negotiate with it as, as, as if it would, would be artworks.
There is a very clear decision by Buren to perform well-known early European repertoires, including the Machot Mass that you've been hearing bits of in this episode, in an aesthetic which breaks away from generally accepted performance scholarship within the early music community. This is why you may read or hear about Grande Lavoie as being controversial. That being said, it's important to point out that critics of Bjorn's ensemble effectively take ownership of all European repertoire, which is too old to be in the classical music canon. The danger that Bjorn's project poses to those critics is the creation of a parallel movement whose performances are confused to represent how that music probably sounded, or at least how his critics believe that music probably sounded. If there is one lesson that we can draw from Björn Schmelzer today, it's that the most important hurdle in the performance of an early music work is the translation of its cultural foreignness into something recognizable that modern audiences are moved by in its reception. And that process, that method of translation, is not something that anyone can be prescriptive about. If you are still listening and you want to read more on this topic, I would suggest reading Bruce Haynes's The End of Early Music or Richard Truscan's Text and Act and his The Danger of Music and other anti-utopian essays. That's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned as next time I'll be speaking with Professor Dr. Natasha Logos about Clara Schumann and her innovation in 19th century concert programming and performances. I'm Andrew Byrne, and thanks for listening. <laughs>